Good morning, everybody. Doing well? We are uh, coming to the last section of the Gospel of Matthew. As you know, we've been here for quite some time, and we are moments before the betrayal of Jesus, the torture and murder of Jesus. And we're at a place where Matthew, the biography of the life of Jesus, um, should, be, should be pressing upon us a question. And it's a question that we don't often ask as we read it because we're 2,000 years removed and have 2,000 years of Christian tradition to sort of answer the question for us. But if you were reading this for the first time, you've been getting these glimpses and hints that Jesus is going to Jerusalem in order that he might be handed over and crucified. The question that would normally come out of that is, why is Jesus going to Jerusalem in order to be killed and crucified. Like, why would you, if you know it's gonna happen, don't go that way type of thing. And so the question is, why is Jesus going to die? What's the why behind that? And today, Jesus is going to answer that question for us, but he's not gonna do it by giving a, a, a sermon or like an academic lecture or even telling a parable, which he has so often done. He's gonna answer the question of why he came to die by sharing a meal, by sharing a meal with his friends, with those whom he calls his brothers. And so the setup for that scene takes place in Matthew chapter 26. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now there's two, two parties involved here, and one of the parties involved should be no shocker, the other one should be a complete shock. Obviously the chief priests are a part of sort of the religious establishment of the day, and we've been seeing for the last several chapters and several months going back to January, a few months going back to January, that the religious establishment, the, the kind of religious institution and those in charge of the temple complex, they got it out for Jesus. They want him dead. So no surprise that they're a part of the conspiracy and plot to kill him. The shocker, at least it should be, is that Judas is in on it, one of his own. Now again, we had 2,000 years of Christian tradition to go, oh yeah, Judas is the guy who betrays Jesus. But like, no, think about this, man. This is one of his own one of his friends, the one who he calls brother. Judas is in on the betrayal of Jesus. And he does so, according to the text, for 30 pieces of silver. Now we don't know the, the exact amount or, or exact equivalent, and there's debate about what coin was exactly were used, but probably likely, these are coins that represent a day's wage, so we're talking roughly 30 days wages, which means Judas betrayed Jesus for about a month's paycheck. That's what his friend, his brother, his so-called Messiah was worth. It goes on. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at a table with the 12. So according to tradition, it was very important that you ate the Passover meal in Jerusalem. 
And if you've been tracking for the last few weeks, you know because it's Passover, there is a ton of more people in Jerusalem than normally. People from all over, especially the rest of Israel, but from all over, would be gathering in one city, Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover meal. And so finding a place, a room, to actually have that meal was, was sometimes quite difficult. But Jesus just says, go talk to this guy. He's got a room. It's already all figured out. It should remind you a little bit of when Jesus in the triumphal entry, just tells the disciple, oh yeah, go talk to this dude about a donkey. Got to figure it out. Let's go figure this out. Get the room. Prepare the Passover meal. So preparations are made and then we're invited into this scene that is often called the Last Supper, which sets up the Lord's table or communion, depending upon what tradition you were brought up in is if you were raised Christian, it's called a lot of different things. But it's this last dinner, this last supper that ultimately becomes the grounds for the Christian communion meal. And in it, it says Jesus is is with his 12 and they're reclining at a table. Now, as a modern person, when you picture, just watch, begin to picture the last supper. Jesus, table, the 12 disciples around him. Is there an image that's coming to your mind? Is there a painting? Very popular painting. If it wasn't in your mind, like as soon as I started talking about it, it came to your mind. If it didn't ever get there, now you have it. This is like one of the most famous paintings in human history. It's known all around. And it's actually very good. This is actually exactly, I mean, from a historical perspective, exactly what that Last Supper would have looked like. If it was in fifth century Europe. Um, 15th century Europe. That's exactly what it looked like in 15th century Europe. Uh, Most likely, it looks something like this. So, several differences, but they're all important. One, the disciples would have been eating likely at a table that was called the triclinium, and it was a U-shaped table. And this is is really important. The triclinium, the U-shaped table, creates an environment where everyone is looking at everyone. So, you remember the first image? There's distance from Jesus, and the disciples are like peeking around just to see the side of his face. And if Jesus turned one direction, you just see the back of his head. You don't get eye contact all around. With the triclinium, kind of everybody sees everybody and anybody could talk to anybody. It's closer. Also, they aren't sitting in chairs, they're reclining. The tradition was you would lean and recline, sort of like half lay down and half sit up. You would use your left arm, your left elbow as the support and you'd use your right hand to eat. And so you're laying down, you're relaxed, you're reclining, you're sitting facing each other. It's close, it's intimate. Much more so than that other painting. Now why is this important? Moments before Jesus is betrayed to be tortured and crucified, he chooses to spend his last moments with his friends, those whom he calls brothers, sharing one last final meal, and it's close and it's intimate. His friends are there. His brothers are there. Which makes what happens next in the betrayal all the greater. All the greater in the sense of tragedy. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he has dipped his hand in the dish with me, will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man, for that man if he had not been born. 
Judas, who would betray Jesus, answered him, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. So there's a couple details that are pretty interesting here. That are, they're also really easy to miss. One, all the disciples pretty much are asking, is it I? Is it I? It's like they are all at this moment aware of the cowardice in their own heart. They are aware of the unfaithfulness that lies in their heart. You know, there'll be certain degrees, like Peter will muster up enough strength to be like, I'll never do this, I'll protect you, Lord. But sure enough, part of them, part of them, they, they know they know something's not right in their heart. And certainly, Peter may be over here, but then you have Doubting Thomas way over here. So they all, is it I, Lord? Could I do that? And then you get this response at the end by Judas. Is it I? Is it I, Rabbi? Which is interesting because the other disciples are recorded as, as saying, is it I, Lord? And Judas says, Judas says, is it I, Rabbi, or teacher? Which is, that, that may be nothing in and of itself, you could say. You're trying to make some type of connection that the disciples had Jesus as Lord and Judas didn't. But th- there's more than just this text. There is not a single occurrence in the Gospel of Matthew where you see Judas referring to Jesus as Lord. Additionally, there's not a single occurrence in all four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Judas refers to Jesus as Lord. So they're a way of sort of cluing you in to what's really taking place. Is it I? And he said, you have said so. And it's in this context of betrayal and impending torture and death that Jesus begins the Last Supper, the last dinner, the last meal, the Passover meal, what we would call communion. Now, as he begins this Passover meal, what you need to be aware of is that this event, this scene, is not a standalone event or scene. Jesus is, is standing in the middle of the streams of Old Testament tradition, Old Testament imagery, all the metaphors and, and pictures that the Hebrew scriptures give us. Jesus is standing like in the middle of that stream. And so there are countless allusions and pictures that come to mind, if you know the Hebrew scriptures, that inform your understanding of this final supper, this last Passover meal. We could do, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, we could do like a 10-part series on the images and metaphors and illusions in the communion meal that are established in the Hebrew scriptures. For today, I just wanna focus on two major stories and probably the two most significant stories. These two stories in the Old Testament shape and form and give us the lens by which we ought to see this Last Supper through, this Passover meal. They come from the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. They both deal with the first two covenants that are made with God and his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And they both deal with lambs. And if you're familiar with the Passover meal that's now being celebrated for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the first one, you know it deals with a Passover lamb. So like all of that is there in our understanding of this text. So the first story that informs us and gives shape to the Passover meal comes to us from Genesis chapter 12. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we talk a lot about this passage because it's, it's, it's not just central to Passover, it's central to the entirety of the narrative of the Old Testament and, and by implication, the entire Bible. But in this, there's a guy named Abraham. He is a pagan who doesn't follow the Lord. God calls him out of, calls him out of nowhere. He says, go forth, leave everything behind, Abraham. Leave everything, leave your father's house, come and follow me, and as you do so, I am going to bless you. I'm gonna make you a great people. I'm gonna give you a great nation, a great land, and in and through you and your descendants, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed. Now, there's a powerful phrase that's used here. When when God tells Abraham, go from your country, the Hebrew behind that, go from, is lech lecha, and it's a much stronger term than how it sounds in English, like go from, like leave behind. This is like go forth, like leave, like with urgency, get Get away from your father's house and go to the land I will show you, lech lecha. Now, in order for all of these promises to come true, something needs to occur that hasn't happened in Genesis chapter 12. God says, you're gonna have a great people. Be a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the stars. The problem is in Genesis 12, Abraham doesn't only not have a lot of descendants, he doesn't even have a kid, he doesn't have a son, he doesn't have children. And so there's like the promises of God are contingent upon something that hasn't happened. To make the problem worse, Abraham's getting old, like really old. Him and his wife are both like going, I guess this ain't happening. And God's like, no, I'm, gonna pr- I'm going to come through. And God indeed comes through and Abraham and his wife have a child and they name him Isaac. Isaac from the Hebrew word for laughter. And there's this idea that Sometimes God good, good, God's goodness is so good that all you can do in response is laugh. And in this sense, it was true in a negative sense because Abraham, and in particular his wife, when they're hearing the promises of God about a child in their old age, they laugh as if it's too good to be true. Just laugh, that's not gonna happen. Nevertheless, God blesses them and they have a child and they name him Laughter. Okay, so now we're going somewhere. The promised heir, the promised child from whom the blessings of this Abrahamic promise will flow. He's alive, he's growing up. But then this child faces an immediate threat and the immediate threat comes from God himself. 10 chapters later, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now you gotta understand, like, your response is like, like, like Abraham's response. Like, what? Like, not only is this unthinkable, but the very logic of the promises that God made to Abraham are contingent upon this child. So it's unthinkable for a number of reasons, but it's also unthinkable because God, you promised some things and you said it would happen through this child and now you're telling me to kill this child? So it's unthinkable on multiple levels. 
There's three significant kind of Hebrew highlights I want to draw your attention to in this. Um, The first one is underlined. God calls out to Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. In Hebrew, hinani. Hinani, here I am. It's this, this posture of humility. The Lord calls, here I am, Lord. What would you have of me? The reason why this phrase is important is in this story, in this narrative, there will be three Hinanis, three here I am's, and they will form the structure of the story. It's as if there's phase one, two, and three, and they surround the three different occurrences of these Hinani phrases, here I am. Secondly, there's this repetition placed on Isaac. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, You feel that, like three, it's one, two, three. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. Significant attention is put on this child. Interesting, uh, whom you love, this is the first occurrence of the Hebrew word for love in the scriptures. So the first occurrence of the word for love in the Hebrew scriptures is when a father is displaying his love for a son. The first occurrence is a father's love for his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. And then he says, take the son whom you love and go. And we just read and go, but in Hebrew this is lech lecha. It's the same phrase, and this will be the last time that phrase occurs in the Hebrew scriptures. So you need to think of it like this. At one point God says to Abraham, lech lecha, leave everything behind. Leave it and follow me. Leave it all behind and trust me. And now, once again, and for the last time, God will say, lech lecha, leave everything behind and go to Mount Moriah. Follow me. Abraham has walked with God for decades. And now there's one final lech lecha. Go, leave it behind and follow. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, as you're reading this, your response should be, if I thought I heard God telling me to sacrifice my child... I would turn myself in because I'm going crazy. I am insane. And your response is accurate. It's correct. There's a major difference, though, in the historical setting that is taking place. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was not uncommon for a deity, a god, a goddess, or a set of gods and goddesses to demand human sacrifice, to demand the utmost sacrifice, that of child sacrifice. And there are many occurrences of this, and they're actually recorded in Scripture where God's people actually participate in this, where kings of Israel actually participate in child sacrifice. And so in the ancient Near Eastern context, the idea that a god or goddess or set of deities would demand a child to be sacrificed to make appeasement is not extraordinary. The the, the question for Abraham, though, is that I thought my God was different. I thought I've come to know the one true Lord of Lords, 
And the God of Israel, the God that revealed himself to me, that had me leave my father and his house, who I followed for decades, I thought he was good and for me and not against me, and I've trusted in his goodness and his promises, and now his very promises, which I thought would come true for me, he's saying, I must kill, must destroy. So it's not out of the ordinary to be asked this question, but for Abraham, it's like, I thought my God, I thought this God was different. I thought he was different. Abraham has walked with his God for decades, and now he must walk the hardest 50 miles of his life. Mount Moriah is roughly 50 miles away from his current location. It'll take three days journey. You can't even like begin to imagine what those three days, what those 50 miles looked like. Like, the, the, the trauma, the pain, the anxiousness, the stress. God, I know you are good, but you're asking me to, to kill my beloved. Like, how can this be? For 50 miles, that pain and stress and trauma and anxiety, nevertheless, he keeps going. And you can, you can picture yourself on the first night, maybe. Picture Abraham. And on the first night, it's time to, to build a fire. And so he doesn't even think. He just says, Isaac, collect some wood for the fire, and then his heart just stops. And he sees his boy collecting the wood, knowing that it's probably from some of this very wood that he's collecting in which the burnt offering is to be made. And maybe then he has a flashback to when his boy was a little bit younger and running around being silly because, see, Isaac uh, found out his name meant laughter, so he liked to tell jokes. And he remembers his son trying to be funny at the age of three. But there's no laughter from Abraham as he remembers these moments. There'll be no laughter. And maybe he remembers the countless nights he took Isaac out in the middle of the night and said, look up at the stars, son. Do you want to know how good God is? Do you want to know how good he is? Start trying to count the stars. Can you count them? No, dad, there's too many. Isaac, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. God is so good. He's going to give you a great nation and a great people. He's promised us these things. This night, it's very hard to see the goodness of God. There is no laughter. There is no rejoicing. Just the fear of the impending doom. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. He's made it to Mount Moriah. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. This phrase that's underlined the sentence is, is incredible. Abraham says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So questions arise out of that. Like, does Abraham actually believe that? Or is he lying? He could be lying, right? He has some servants that he brought. Any sane servant is gonna stop Abraham if he says, oh, I'm gonna go sacrifice Isaac. So maybe he's lying to them so they don't stop him. Or maybe Abraham's uh, experiencing some type of cognitive like dissonance, like some disconnect because the, the trauma and the pain is overwhelming. He's kind of gone into a, a state of numbness. 
The boy and I will come back. Or maybe he actually believes that. Maybe in this moment, Abraham so trusts in the goodness and faithfulness of his God that he says, I don't know what's gonna happen at that top of the mountain. I will be faithful to him and my son and I are going to worship and we're coming back down alive. Now of the three options, the correct answer is the third one because the author of Hebrews hundreds of years later would back at, look back at that event and say that Abraham in that moment believed that God had the power to raise his boy back up. Doesn't God have figured out I've walked with you for decades, Lord. You've been good to me. This makes no sense. But I'll be faithful. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, Hinani, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. This is the second Hinani, here I am phrase. The first one was from God. The second is from the boy. Dad, dad, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And so picture the old man, old man Abraham, kind of mustering enough, just just enough courage to get the words out, his voice shaking. Here I am, son, Hinani, God himself is going to provide a lamb for the sacrifice. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, there's an image we need to correct here because for the most part, the majority of us have the wrong image in our mind. What we picture is grown man Abraham taking his young boy Isaac and getting ropes and binding him to the altar. And at a certain point, you have to realize, Isaac puts things together like, I'm on the altar to be sacrificed. And then he begins to scream and cry and fight back. And there's this poor boy that you're seeing like get traumatized. He thinks his dad's going to kill him. And so there's this image of like the boy being bound against his will and overwhelmed with fear and fighting back. But there's some things you gotta know. As we said, Abraham's an old man. And we can get a, 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 a spectrum for the age of Isaac at this point. Some, some biblical scholars will argue for a young age, some will argue for an old age, but I'm gonna give you the two ends of the spectrum. On the young end, Isaac could be 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. On the other end of the spectrum, he's in his early 30s, which means something. Do you follow this? Isaac can take Abraham Abraham's a very, very old man. Isaac can take him. He's youngest in his late teenage years and his oldest, his early 30s. He can take him. So think earliest. Think he's 16. Think he's 15. Think he's 14. And don't think like a modern 14-year-old. Think an ancient Near Eastern 14-year-old. This dude's been working from sunup to sundown since he was five years of age. He's tough. The ancient world's not easy. A 15-year-old boy is incredibly strong. He's already considered adult and treated as an adult. So we're dealing with an adult here. 15, 16, 17 years of old, maybe early 30s. He could take this guy. 
at a certain point, the adult Isaac realizes what's going on. Dad, you want me to get on the altar? He could, he could fight back. He could take him. But what's this image telling us? There is a faithful and obedient son who trusts his father enough to lay down his life. This isn't a, a young boy screaming and crying. This is a 16-year-old to 30-year-old saying, right here, Dad? Okay. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what God has told you, but I trust in this moment. Now, if you don't know what, what's gonna happen, like this story is like, it's already like crazy enough and now it says, Abraham reached out his, his hand and took the, took the knife to slaughter his son and you ever watch one of those movies where they got the music and intensity building up, building up, building up and it's like, you can't contain it anymore and it's like tiptoe anticipation, expectation, what is going to happen and as that's about to explode, the text changes and it's a, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Hinani, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on your boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Okay. This is interesting. It may be something, it may be nothing. But do you remember the first Hanani? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? God himself will provide a lamb. Now in this, God provides, but he doesn't provide a lamb. He provides a ram. Now, for those of you who, you know, your, your goat game, your lamb game, your, your cattle game is strong, you're saying, Isaac, I know you modern folk don't really know the difference between these animals, but a ram is just a grown-up Little lamb. It's a male grown-up little lamb. They're actually the same type of animal. Yes, that's why it could be nothing. But also, the image that you had in your mind was a young lamb. Was a young little lamb. God's going to provide a little lamb. And what's caught in the thicket is a grown male ram. So it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now here's something that may be nothing or it could be something. Abraham calls the mountain where this takes place, Mount Moriah, the mount on which the Lord will provide. Which is strange because you would think you would name it the Lord has provided, because the Lord just, just did, did provide, he did provide it doesn't mean that the Lord has provided. There's this future anticipation built into the name of Mount Moriah. The Lord will provide. He'll provide a lamb. So maybe, maybe, it could be, maybe something different. But when you leave this story, you have sort of these um, tension points that are unresolved and kind of like plot holes that are unresolved. Like, where is the lamb? What's so significant about Mount Moriah? Why not the Lord has provided instead of the Lord will provide? And why in the story, when it came to this ultimate sacrifice, did it have to be a son and only son, the son whom you love? So like all that stuff's floating around in the story. That's story number one. Story number two. Traditionally at a Passover meal in a Jewish home, the youngest child asks a question. 
And the question is this, what makes this night different from all other nights? And so the father would answer that question and he would begin to describe all the the symbolic elements that are out on the table. There's bitter herbs, there's unleavened bread, the wine, and he would go about that and he would also talk about the story of the Exodus. So you have to, to, to kind of understand that every time the Passover is celebrated, every year for hundreds of years, now to this day, thousands of years, the Exodus story is told. Now briefly, what is the story of the Exodus? Abraham's descendants, Isaac's descendants, outnumber the stars, or at least they're beginning to outnumber the stars. But in the process of that, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. So Isaac's descendants, the people of the covenant and promises of God, are slaves in Egypt. And they've been there for hundreds of years. And finally, God says, enough is enough. I see their suffering and I hear the cries of my people. I'm going to deliver them. So he raises up Moses to confront the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and the Egyptian people. Let my people go. And of course, the response is no. So what God does here, it's it's interesting. He brings about 10 consecutive plagues. And each one of these plagues serves as a judgment upon Israel, but they also serve as an opportunity for repentance. Because God starts off these plagues, and they're kind of bad, but they're not really bad. So you get the water turning to blood, like plague number two, you remember what it is? Frogs, frogs are everywhere. Now, these aren't like man-eating frogs that go around killing people, it's just a bunch of frogs. So it's like super annoying and problematic, right? But it's not ultimate destruction. And after each plague, there's an opportunity to Pharaoh to repent and let the people of Israel go. But he doesn't. So the plagues increase in intensity. You get annoying frogs to like gnats and flies to boils to the cattle dying, your food source being destroyed. And they increase, and each step of the way, there's an opportunity for repentance, which says even in God's judgments, there is still goodness. But ultimately, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let the people go. And on the last plague, God says an angel of death is going to come over all the land of Egypt, And it don't matter who you are, Egyptian, Israelite, beast even, animal, doesn't matter. The firstborn son is going to be killed. He also provides a provision though. He says it doesn't matter who you are, the angel of death is going to kill every firstborn child, but there's a way out of that. And it's actually very, very simple. All you have to do is take the blood of a lamb and put it on your doorpost. Again, this stuff sounds weird to us, but ancient people were sacrificing all the time, putting blood somewhere. It's quite normal. So it's actually, very, and it, from, from their perspective, it's like, we just sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and put it, and then we're safe? Yeah, that's how it worked. Exodus 12. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. The whole assembly by the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at night, at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Like super easy, super scary, angel of death. All firstborn sons are killed. But hey, if you don't want that to happen, blood of the lamb on the doorpost. 
In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it at haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So picture a dad on the day of the Passover, the sun setting, it's all about to go down, and his son comes to him in fear. Dad, all kinds of strange things have been happening, and now I hear that, that God is going to, to kill the firstborn sons, and I, I know that I'm your firstborn child, so dad, what's gonna happen? And the dad assures his son, I love you, God loves you. You're going to be saved tonight. God made it so simple, it's so easy. We're, we're gonna sacrifice this, this lamb, we're gonna put the blood on the doorpost, and then, then you'll be saved. Everything's gonna be fine, don't worry, son. Don't worry, son. And so there's this idea that judgment comes upon the whole of the land and your house will be spared, your house will be saved by the blood of these sacrificial lambs. You can almost hear the echo at this point, right? Isaac, where is the lamb? You know, Isaac asking, Dad, where's, where's the lamb? God, God's gonna provide a lamb. So the Exodus story, there's those, those echoes and illusions. Now, when Jesus now is setting up his Passover meal with his disciples, moments before he's betrayed, all of this is coming. This is the streams of the Old Testament tradition flowing to this moment. Jesus is in an upper room. He's with his disciples. They have prepared the Passover meal. So you have all these images of judgment upon the wicked and freedom and slaves being rescued from oppression and God showing up in, in mighty acts and delivering his people. And now it's Passover time in Jerusalem and we have a Messiah figure. It's fever pitch. It's all about to go down. And it's precisely in that moment before his betrayal that Jesus says, as they're eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it talks about the, the bread and the Passover meal being the bread of affliction. So you would picture someone saying, this is the bread of affliction. And now all of a sudden Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. It's as if the affliction will be experienced in his body, in his flesh, and it will be done unto you for you. And he goes on, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You picture for hundreds of years, the story at the Passover table is, and then the blood of the lamb is poured out upon the doorpost. And now Jesus, at the Passover meal, says, this is my blood, poured out, not on doorposts, but poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins, for your deliverance, for your salvation. And you could imagine some of the disciples beginning to connect some of the dots. Maybe some of them didn't, maybe some of them were a little bit more tuned in than others. 
but the Passover, the story of Abraham and Isaac, the images, the illusions, the metaphors, they're, they're all flooding into this moment. This is my body. This is, this is the blood of the new covenant and it's blood poured out not on doors but for you. There's another important element. Okay. What I'm about to say is not explicitly stated in the scriptures. This isn't explicitly stated. But I think it's implicitly there, like at least a little bit. Okay. So we have the elements of the Passover meal. You have the bread, you got the wine, and you have people eating. But like in the Gospel of Matthew and in all four Gospel accounts, there's something that's not mentioned that you think ought to be like the centerpiece of this meal. What's not mentioned and what is central to the Passover meal? There's a Passover lamb. This is what it's about. It's very interesting that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all neglect mentioning a lamb being there. And it's as if they're trying to get you as a reader to, to, to connect the dots. Why is there no lamb there? Why is there no lamb there? Where's the lamb? Because I think they're trying to get you to see the lamb is there. And if you have eyes to see, then you can see it. And you will echo the words of John the Baptist when John the Baptist sees his cousin Jesus beginning his earthly ministry and he proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when you understand this, then some of these other sayings in the New Testament begin to make sense. Because, look at John 19. John 19, at the crucifixion of Jesus, it says of Jesus that none of his bones were broken. Why is that important? Because none of the Passover lamb's bones were to be broken. Matthew 27, that says that Jesus dies in darkness. Why? Because that's when Passover happens. When does Passover occur? At twilight, in the night. And then Peter and the author of Hebrews both call Jesus unblemished. Why is it important that they call Jesus unblemished? Because he's the unblemished lamb. And if all of these hints weren't enough, good old Paul the Apostle does what he always does and comes just out and says it. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Jesus, he is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. He is the one who gives us salvation, who frees us, who delivers us, delivers us, who defeats in the past the gods of Egypt, but now defeats Satan's sin and death on our behalf. He gives us life, not death. He does not condemn, he forgives sin. And just as he brought judgment on the gods of Egypt, he brings judgment upon the God of this world. Now remember all the unresolved tension pieces, the plot holes. Connect the dots. Where is the lamb? Dad, Abraham, where's the lamb? God himself will provide a lamb. Where will he provide this lamb? On Mount Moriah. In Abraham's day, those hills were called Mount Moriah. In Jesus' days, those hills were called Jerusalem. It is on the Mount of Zion, in the hills of Jerusalem, that the Lamb of God will be sacrificed. When will this occur? Because it's not God has provided, it's he will provide. Abraham, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declared the Lord himself will provide a lamb on this very mountain. And why did it have to be the only son, the one and only, the beloved son? Why did it have to be that way? Because God would not ask Abraham to give up his only son. 
For God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit saw fit before the foundations of the world that God the Son would be given up in order that we might receive forgiveness. What God did not ask of Abraham, he himself did. And so when you look to Christ, you look to the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. How do God's saints conquer? They conquer by the blood of the Lamb. Now, we bring all of this with us every Sunday because we take communion every Sunday. We're bringing the rich traditions of the Hebrew scriptures, what Jesus established on that Passover night. We're bringing all of that with us. And what what does it say to us? It says, you can be sure of the forgiveness of sins. That whatever accusations you tell yourself, accusations others tell you, accusations from the accuser, that they, won't, they don't hold weight. Christ has said you're forgiven. Okay. Now, uh, I wanna speak to everyone at this moment, but particularly those of you who, who have um, a, a feeble conscience. And what I mean by that is you recognize that you wrestle with feelings of guilt and shame. You recognize in your, yourself a weak faith you know, you see some people who have strong faith and you're like, I, I, I don't, my faith is weak. I doubt God's goodness. I doubt his love for me. I doubt my doubts. That's how fickle and feeble I am. I doubt my doubts. I hear people say, God loves me. And I go, yeah, oh, I guess. Well, he, God, God loves all his children. So I guess I get thrown in. But you don't like think that God loves you to that degree. And you think that, yeah, God's really forgiving, but you know, this stuff I have to take with me. It's too, it's too much. This stuff is all good, and I'm sure it meant for other people, but I just get thrown in, and I barely got enough to faith to believe that I even get thrown in. You know, some of, some of you are like that, right? You're anx- you have anxious thoughts about God's love and his goodness, and then you have anxious thoughts about your anxious thoughts. And then you doubt yourself and you doubt those doubts and you come up with some other sinister reason why you're filled with doubt and plagued with with fear. And so when you hear Christ saying, this is my body given for you, this is my blood poured out for you, it's very difficult to believe. It's very difficult. So I want to share you a story that, that we've shared a couple times before. Um, but I think it's, it's really important and illustrative of everything we've been talking about. It's a story that um, a, biblical, a biblical scholar by the name of D.A. Carson made up. Um, and it's, it's, it asks you to hypothetically take yourself back to the first Passover, like the very first one. Uh, and then you are to picture two dads, dad number one and dad number two. And let's say we already, we already met dad number one. Remember he was the dad whose son came to him and who was afraid? It's like, son, we're gonna put the blood on the door. You know? You're gonna be good. So that's dad number one. Dad number one, man of faith. He don't even have to wrestle with his faith or, 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 or fear that night. He's like, Moses said, do this, done. You know, you, you, some of you are like that guy. Some of you know people like that. Like horrible things are happening in their lives and they're just like, it's all in God's hands. I trust him. You're like, what? 
So dad number two is the opposite. Dad number two sees dad number one just, you know, singing a worship song, putting up the blood. He's like, how can you be so confident? How can you be so sure? Dad number one says, bro, we got the directions from Moses, just put the blood of the lamb. Dad number two says, yeah, but have you seen the stuff that's been going on in the world? There's been like plagues, frogs, animals are dying. Never seen anything like this. And now we get word that an angel of death is going to come and claim and kill our firstborn sons? How can you just sit there like it's all good and have confidence in that? Hey man, Moses did all those other plagues. God used them and so he's probably gonna do this 10th one and we got the directions. Dad number two, I don't even know if I could trust Moses. Where did, where did he come from? I hear he used to, to live this land, but then he went away. I mean, who is he? How do we know he hears from God? How do we know this God is good? You know, I, I sure like to believe God is good, but you know, I have, a lot of, I have a lot of pains. I sure have a lot of moments in my life where it didn't seem like God showed up or cared about me. It's good for you, you have six sons, I have one. And if I'm being honest, it sure looks like the goodness of God always seems to escape me. You don't know my story. And so that night, the man of faith, father number one, in confidence, puts the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And that same night, dad number two, with fear and trembly, trembling, just praise God, you know I'm weak, but please just, please let this work. And even as he's doing it, he's worried, did I put too much blood? Did I do too little blood? I don't know how this exactly works, but he does and says, God, please see it, see it, spare my son. On the night the angel of death comes, whose son is saved? Which house is spared? whose child is saved? Father number one or father number two? Both children are saved. You say, why? Why? Because it's not the power of your faith that saves. It is not the power of your personal piety or your personal acts of righteousness. It's not the power of your faith. It is the power of the one in whom you put your faith in. It is on the grounds of the blood of the lamb that you have assurance. It is not dependent upon whatever feeble faith you can muster up in some time of weakness. If it was dependent upon how much faith we could muster up in our moments of weakness, none of us would be saved. It is on the grounds of the blood of another. Your assurance is on the blood of the lamb. It is not the power of your personal faith, but the power of the one whom you put your faith in. Not the power of your faith, but the object of your faith. And the object of Christian faith is Christ, the blood of the lamb. And on that you can stand on certain and sure ground. So that when the accuser comes, when the enemy comes, which may be someone in your life or your own personal thoughts or Satan, 
when the accusations come. God can't love you. Those accusations are made null and void because of the blood of the lamb. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. How much faith does it take to move a mountain? How much faith does it take to move this much? So if this is the, the, the tiniest of all the seeds, if, if that's what you bring to God, he'll say, I can use that. I can use that. And we ought to be a very thankful people that it's not contingent upon the power of our personal piety in a moment of weakness. But we stand on the certain ground of the blood of the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world on our behalf. It is his blood poured out not on doorpost, but for us that brings us rescue and salvation and forgiveness of sins. So we take all of this with us every Sunday because every Sunday we take communion. Every Sunday, all the streams of the Old Testament come to us. They flow to us in rich tradition and imagery and we remind ourselves it is by grace we stand. It is by grace. It's the power of the blood of the lamb. So let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body, it's given for you. And here, Isaac asked his father in this moment, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And hear the reply of faithful old man Abraham, God himself will provide the lamb. And now thousands of years later, we look back to what they looked forward to, God indeed provided the lamb. Let's remember Christ's sacrifice. Likewise, Jesus took the cup that night. He says, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's the power of his work that brings about forgiveness of sins. Christ goes to fight the battle that we could not fight, to fight the enemy that we could not overcome. He does it for us on our behalf. And so as we take the cup, we pledge our allegiance. We give to him our faithfulness because he was first faithful to us. And so Father, as your people, we come to you and we want to worship your son, the lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. We thank you that we stand on certain ground that we have assurance because of his work and not the work of our hands. We stand upon his grace, his truth, his love, and his sacrifice. Your goodness was true to Abraham, to Moses, to Israel, and to us. We recognize all good things come from you, and we trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen.